conversation with Margaret Winchcombe of PACT. This is Wheel Life. Legal Reflections on Vulnerable Road Users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wheel Life. I'm Caroline Hall of DAC Beechcross Listers. And I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. Lovely to catch up with you again, Caroline. It's been a while. Yes, we've been slightly on hiatus for the last couple of months. We have, but I'm delighted to see you've moved house in the meantime. You're recording from a whole new location, which is good to see. I am, and I'm currently looking out at the snow because we're recording this on the snow day. I know we're recording it in March, but it happens to be a snow day. But March being a very exciting couple of bits, well, exciting, a few bits of local news for us in the e-scooter world. In our last episode that came out just before Christmas, which was the quick legal update, we discussed the case of Drago in the London Borough of Barnet, which we thought was pretty much the first litigated e-scooter personal injury claim with the argument of illegality in in, in the defence. So if you want to catch up on all the background to that case, do listen to our last episode. But it leaves on a bit of a cliffhanger because after two days of trial, the judge adjourned for legal argument. And at that point, it was set for March, which seemed so far away because we were still pre-Christmas but here we are the final day of the hearing was the 6th of March 2023 and they had the legal argument and judgment on that day very briefly the claimant was riding a private e-scooter and hit a pothole and therefore brought her claim against the London Borough Barnet under the Highways Act and the defendant's argument was obviously one of illegality but primarily you only got to illegality having got over the twin hurdles of the claimant proving a defect under Section 41 and then triggering the defendant's defence under Section 58. And it was only if both of those hurdles were passed, i.e. the claim was made and the defence failed, that the illegality argument would be trotted out. Tragically, perhaps for us, in the next temporary judgment, his honour Judge Aluba Casey held that the claim failed because it didn't satisfy Section 41. So the claimant didn't get over that hurdle of Section 41 in the first place. He then put a second death knell in the coffin by saying even if it had the Section 58 defence, the actions on the part of the local authority would have been a sufficient defence. So there were two hurdles and no illegality discussion at all. Although he did say there's no need for me to go go on to decide the interesting question of illegality. Shame for the rest of us. But unfortunately, that's a bit of a dead end, that one. Well, not having listened back to our podcast, I've got a feeling that's the conclusion we thought he would come to. Sure, it is the conclusion because we're always right. (laughs) But it remains still to be argued out, I think. Yeah, so that was the civil position. And the other issue that has been heard in court since we last spoke is relating to the criminal charges that were arose out of the death of Linda Davis back last June. We've spoken about this lady before on the podcast. She was tragically killed when she was knocked over by an e-scooter rider on a pavement. It was a 14-year-old boy and back on the 15th of February, he had pled guilty to causing death by driving a vehicle otherwise than accordance with a licence and also admitted causing death by driving a vehicle while uninsured. And his sentencing is actually due today. So we won't know the outcome or what sentence he's going to get. And we can mention that in the next podcast. But we've now had a civil case and we've now got a criminal case arising out of an e-scooter accident. 
And just to be clear, when today, we're actually recording on the 8th of March, when it gets posted today won't be so relevant, but it's the 8th of March that the sentencing is happening, so we'll find out about that quite soon. So it is all moving forward, and moving forward indeed, today we're absolutely delighted and rather excited to have the superstar celebrity guest of Margaret Winchcombe, who's the Deputy Executive Director of PACT. So welcome, really big welcome, and congratulations on your recent promotion as well. And as you know, one of our key interests in this podcast is e-scooters, that's how you and I met Margaret talking and presenting and various e-scooter events but we're really excited to have you with us. Well thank you very much for the welcome Emily and Caroline. So please start by telling us about PACS. PACS stands for the Parliamentary Advisory Council for Transport Safety. We're a charity and we have a vision for a transport system that's free of death and life-changing injury. We were formed 40 years ago. This January was the anniversary of the amendment in the Transport Act 1981 to make seatbelt wearing compulsory and those experts and parliamentarians have continued with us supporting us and we've grown now to a membership of over 150. PACS has unique selling points as the only NGO which addresses transport safety not just on roads but also air and rail across the UK. We focus on the parliament and government and key stakeholders in academia, industry, local authorities etc. That represents our wide membership and we don't have any commercial or sectional interests, meaning that we can give independent advice. We also provide the secretariat to the all-party parliamentary group for transport safety. So that really is a sort of independent voice speaking truth to power, as they like to say. I mean, that's a great role to be in. So tell us about you. How did you get involved with PAX and what's your role? So I joined PAX a little under two years ago, coming in as a senior research and policy officer. Um, At that point, we had this project funded by the Road Safety Trust to investigate the safety of private e-scooters. However, transport isn't what I've been doing for the last X decades. And I started out as a chartered civil engineer, interested in water more. And then I was a project manager, construction project manager for high quality laboratories. Thoroughly enjoyed that, but then had a bit of a career break, setting up charities, social enterprises. Transport is something that's been a passion throughout all of that time. So in the opportunity to resume my career, I decided I would choose transport, women in transport. Today is International Women's Day, so I'd like to flag that up and flag them up. It helped me with finding this job at PACTS, and I've just been enjoying the last two years very much indeed. When you started at PACTS, did you join with the aim of e-scooters, or was it you started and here you go, have this project that's obviously probably taken over the last two years of your life? The latter, yes. I don't know whether I would have um, changed my opinion if I'd known in advance, but it was fantastic to have a project which really uh, was completely starting from scratch, building up the project team, collecting the research, spreading out to find as much as we possibly could and then making the recommendations, which we're now excited to be following through with the DFT, waiting for that time when parliamentary time is available for the legislation to be moved through. Well, we'll come on to those because we'll have a little look back at where we've got to. But I have to say, your introduction, I'm thinking we might have to have a quick swerve into an episode of the Life Scientific. <laughs> but you've brought us back firmly on track. And as you say, on International Women's Day, it's really brilliant to have you talking to us. But as you say, you've really made e-scooter. I mean, I think you are the queen of e-scooter advice and information. You've made it really your patch, not least because it is and continues to be a sort of bit of a vacuum of any governmental decision making, if I can put it like that. I mean, just very quick recapping last year was all about things hoping to happen and then not 
quite coming to fruition. But I think in January 2022, the House of Lords debate, Lord Rosser said that e-scooters had much to offer, but they needed relevant and appropriate guidelines in place to address safety concerns. And now in sort of March 2023, you could probably stand up and say much the same. We know more, but are perhaps not so much further on. I mean, we had the potential in the Queen's speech and then Baroness Veer in May last year that there would be a transport bill including something to do with e-scooters and regulations for the e-scooters. But where are we now? Not much further forward. What's happening now, Margaret? Yes, indeed. There doesn't seem to be, there's no fixed date for when the modern transport bill will be heard. It's probably not going to be until the next session. What we are finding, though, is after the hiatus of last summer and autumn, that the current ministers are engaging with stakeholders. So there have been roundtable events. And then, of course, the Transport Select Committee have closed their call for evidence a few weeks ago, but also had some panel committees earlier in February. So the collection of information to help us understand the safety of private e-scooters, rental e-scooters, where they fit into our road network and beyond your business case, etc. That is being considered again. Do we think, but for, as you said, from summer onwards to the end of last year, where we went into the Queen's death, all the tumult with Parliament, do we think we'd have been further forward or do we think actually it was always going to be take a bit longer than we were predicting? The indications are that there will need to be some form of consultation. So I had to guess that consultation could have opened sooner if there had been more stability. So we had the 2020 inquiry with the Transport Select Committee saying the government should be developing and implementing a sensible and proportionate regulatory framework for legally scooter use, drawing on and looking at lessons from other countries to ensure the potential negative impact on pedestrians and disabled people were avoided, but were broadly in favour of e-scooters. And then that's just been recently opened up again, hasn't it? Accepting further evidence at the end of February to look at what has happened or changed. So what came out of those more recent hearings in particular, do you think? I think the significant element for us, because we have been focusing mainly on private e-scooter use, is that there is frustration over the confusion for the members of the general public. The number of private e-scooter imports, that's the best figure that PAX has found on how many might be in use, now exceed 1 million. So in comparison, there are, what, 23,000 rental e-scooters. Now, I appreciate that each rental e-scooter may be used by a number of people per day, but we're looking at significant use of private e-scooters and that's demonstrated across a wider area of England as well. So what's come through from the recent hearings is this frustration that people are purchasing e-scooters, private e-scooters, which are regulated just as a toy, not for use on our roads, not a legal motor vehicle, and that people are getting injured. And although we have heard from Jesse Norman, so there was a debate, a German debate, I think, in December, where he was questioned about how he was handling this, because at the moment it's the police who have to enforce illegal private scooter use on the roads. Um, he responded to say that he was in, in contact with retailers, but we are still in a very difficult position where irresponsible retailers, in the hearings we did hear from Halfords, who explained how they are, they described how they're acting responsibly. Irresponsible retailers mean that significant numbers of private scooters are in use. And while there's no more clearer campaigning, we can't see how that number is going to reduce. And unfortunately, that's coming through in the statistics from the DFT with casualties and some of them being really very severe casualties. 
head injuries in particular being more prevalent in e-scooters than other vulnerable road users. I was speaking with friends recently and she was going to get her teenage daughter one so she could get to school and back. And I was like, do you not know they're illegal? Are they? And she had no clue. And it was the fact that she also thought it was absolutely fine to buy her 14-year-old daughter one. And it was the age range as well. So there's a complete and utter ignorance still with a huge amount of the um, English public. I think that's right. And, you know, I think because we're you know, embedded in this space, it doesn't occur to us that people don't realise they're illegal. I mean, it really struck me, one of the comments in the select committee hearings was, obviously, as you say, Halford said, you know, put their head above the parapet and come along to give evidence. But I think one of the committee members, I'm not sure who it was, was saying, you know, that's all very well, but they'd seen somebody, you know, selling e-scooters with a huge map of the City of London behind them saying, you know, ideal commuting vehicle and no marrying up of the fact that whatever it may be, it is not in any way an ideal commuting vehicle because it's illegal. And that is, you know, it is a genie that really is hard to put back into the bottle. Is it a regional issue across the country, do you think? Because Living in Bristol, I see e-scooters all over the place. Being in London recently, see e-scooters all over the place. However, if you go to an area where there aren't any e-scooter trials or that, for example, I've been to Inverness to where my brother is and I saw one e-scooter, I think the whole two weeks I was there. It was quite a nice break from it, to be entirely honest, because when you were driving along, I didn't have e-scooters shooting left, right and centre. But they're not legal in Scotland. Well, they're not legal all over, obviously, but they've got no trials at all in Scotland. And it's a different attitude, obviously different weather as well. But coming down here in Bristol, it's just, they're just everywhere. Legal, illegal, because they're just part of everyone's consciousness here now. So that's a very interesting question and one that's so hard to answer because there doesn't seem to be any full study of private scooter use. So what we're working with the DFT on is to look at the statistics of casualties and do just that, to look at the hotspots. Do they match up exactly? Now, Wales is a good example. Obviously, it's just over the water from Bristol, but there have been fatalities on private scooters there. There are no rental trials in Wales. Scotland is uh, something different, I guess. We really would like to also know where are the DVSA speaking to retailers who have been found to be selling e-scooters without the proper notification Again, from the debate in December and other correspondence that the DVSA have been contacting retailers where they've been found to be selling illegally. It'd be interesting to know where they are in the country. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, not only in geographical strict location, but also in population density, because obviously they work best on paved areas. And, you know, you do see them a lot in towns and cities and whether there is a much lower attraction in more sort of rural areas or in more you know longer distance they don't go terribly far without being charged etc etc so are you also drilling down into that sort of detail of you know are they mostly urban are they mostly suburban are they rural and any sort of spread like that so we haven't looked at that depth ourselves it was literally just a conversation in the last few days that we were making people aware of this as being a possibility but we could go back to the dft's evaluation report so when the trials were set up They were distributed across the country in villages and towns and cities. And there was a specific example in North Devon where they were providing e-scooters. I think it was on a long-term rental for students at a college. Now, that has subsequently closed because the uptake wasn't sufficient to make it viable for long-term use. But that's the sort of thing that we need analysis to be carried out on. 
We have the evaluation report. It's only the first 18 months. We've had another year and a bit since then, and we've still got another year and a bit to come. There's loads more data that could be collected and analysed. Because that is also really interesting. You know, we're starting to get an idea of the kind of age range that it appeals to and the sort of, you know, the kind of the nature of the commute, the sort of the distance or the purpose. And it's really interesting that idea in North Devon of it being a potentially a commutable vehicle to get you to and from college when the, you know, doubtless absence of a, a thoroughgoing public transport system. But one of the things that I always thought, you know, I remain a great champion of bikes. They're my favourite. And is there any sense of comparison between use or purchasing of e-scooters versus bikes? Because it always struck me that, you know, last mile transport and 99% of the things that scooters are meant to address are better addressed by bicycles for so many reasons and in so many ways. But the sort of focus of the government is on legalising e-scooters. And just are you looking at that comparative data or, or not? So we're not looking at sales. I do a plug for Philip Darnton of the Bicycle Association. If you bring him on at some point, then he might be able to talk about comparable sales because the retailers who are members of that organisation sell both bikes and e-scooters. We look instead at the safety outcomes of bicycles and e-scooters. So the DFT report itself found that the casualty rates were three times e-scooters that of pedal cyclists. And a recent report came out last week of serious injuries that shows as well e-scooter casualties are more severe than pedal cycles. And is that down to the speed or the people riding them just not having the experience and they're more likely to come off in that initial very short period of time? The DFT haven't interrogated that in their report. The um, evidence that we've got is that e-scooter riders fall off in a different way from pedal cyclists and they tend to fall off forwards onto their heads and if we hit our head, then that's going to be a more critical injury than other parts of our body. There is some evidence that people do improve with use of an e-scooter. I don't believe that very many people who use rentable e-scooters at all have practical training, but there is online training that they can access. People who've used e-scooters more frequently are less likely to have collisions. But I think it, inherently it's the mechanism of falling from an e-scooter. Scooters have small wheels. They are more susceptible to instability when you remove your hand from the handlebars for whatever reason. Yes, in comparison to a pedal cycle, when academics in Singapore looked at e-scooters, they found that the bigger the wheels and the more the centre of gravity was at the back, so if you had a seat on an e-scooter, the more stable it would be, which of course has then morphed into a pedal cycle. I was going to say, I'm sure you could give it a technical engineering spin. But I mean, I use both of them, but always use a bike if I can. But frankly, e-scooters are just incredibly unbalanced. They're super tippy and your weight is right on the front because it comes straight up from the wheel. And then there's the pole in the front that everything hangs on. I mean, when I would say hangs on the entire kind of mechanism, it's where you stabilise yourself because that's the only thing you've got to keep yourself stable other than the plate you stand on. It's where you turn because that's the only thing you've got other than where you turn. Whereas on a bike, you're sitting far back, your legs are engaged with the pedals in the middle, which is the mechanism by which you control your speed or not. Your arms are leaning forward in the front and that's where you've got your break so you've got three points of I don't know weighting or stability or whatever it might be and you can put your foot down without immediately falling or tipping and they've got a turning circle I mean intrinsically less stable you can feel it my husband once had a bike which the handlebars were right at the front and in fact our tandem is a bit as well so the further forward your weight on the bike the more tippy it is but it's nothing like an e-scooter well, this takes us nicely into the recommendations from PAX in terms of when, I think I have to say when rather than if, 
e-scooters are legalised, what your recommendations are to be taken into consideration? So our recommendations cover the construction and the use of e-scooters, and there are 14 in all. I'll just pick out some of the key ones. So firstly, wheel size, we've just spoken about that. So our recommendation is that the minimum wheel size is 30 centimetres. Now we've seen the development of the rental e-scooters increasing their wheel size as well, uh, although not all of them have wheel size of 12 inches, 30 centimetres yet. Uh, we would also recommend mandatory helmets. Um, you are more likely to hit your head and hard if you fall off an e-scooter. As I've mentioned already, most serious injuries found in e-scooter riders, they are more likely to be admitted to a major trauma centre or critical care unit. And although people do have limb trauma as well, it's the head injuries which cause the majority of those critical injuries. Um, there are helmets which are available as part of the rental e-scooter trials, and so people can use those there. And then also we'd like to have a speed limited to 12.5 miles an hour Again, referencing the rental trials, over half, I think two-thirds of the rental trials have their speed limited to 12.5 or less. It's been recommended by medics and academics. I mean, inherently, as an e-scooter rider, you're a vulnerable road user, so you haven't got the protection of a metal box. In the event of a collision, you're more likely to result in injuries, and those injuries are going to be more severe the faster you're travelling. And on that speed limit, we suggest that it's actually inherent in the construction of the e-scooter, so that power would be limited, motor size, battery size, so that they couldn't be tweaked, as we've heard many private scooters are already, to increase their speeds terrifyingly up to 60 miles an hour. So we'll just drill into those a bit in a minute, but just to make it clear, so that th these are the recommendations that were published in your February 2023 publication, the recommendations on safety of e-scooters, and we'll put a link to that document when we publish the podcast so people can read all about it at their leisure. Just that very last point about the balance between the speed and the power and the ratio. One of the things that has become clearer, and I think was highlighted in the TFL report, is that the sort of power of the battery is particularly critical when you've got sort of greater weight or when you're trying to grind up a hill. It's more important than the speed. That's, again, probably getting a bit too technical engineering-y. I can see you're starting to frown because my lack of technical explanation is probably grating over many years of your experience. But there's a limit to, as you say, an embedded limit to the speed and the battery power and the battery size. Is that going to make it impossible for them to do certain things? Like, I don't know, get up the Highgate Hill or something like that. Will it inevitably limit the range and use of these e-scooters? The TRL was fascinating, in fact, that it produced results that were counter to what were expected. So they found that, in fact, with the lower power and the higher weight, they could actually accelerate faster. It wasn't what was expected at all. We haven't seen research on e-scooters being tested up hills, but the suggestion is that in actual fact the way they're set up would not impede their use. Now, something that we keep hearing time and time and again, but haven't have any evidence for and haven't proposed ourselves, is that people on e-scooters are safer if they're at the same speed as the traffic around them. So an argument has been that they want to be as fast as possible. Now, we would not support that. I'm sure, Caroline, if you cycle a a bike in Bristol, there are plenty of hills there. And if you're able to keep up at the speed of the traffic, there, that's very impressive almost by reducing speed, that the vehicles can pass you more easily. So yes, Emily, totally appreciate that fear that has been well shared. But no, we don't believe that would limit um, e-scooter use. I'm fascinated by the idea that if you go as fast as the traffic, you're safer. Where is that sort of holding from? Is that anecdotal or is that... So some rental operators have suggested that that's why they would want to have their e-scooters going as fast as possible, you know, up to the 15.5 miles an hour maximum speed. 
allowed by the government trials. Well, I'm sure the e-scooter rider who overtook me on the M32 motorway when I was doing 40 miles an hour obviously thought he was the proponent to that theory. As you come out of Bristol on the M32, it's 40 miles per hour to a certain point. And I was pootling along at 40 and I thought a motorbike was overtaking me. And no, it was an e-scooter rider. On a private e-scooter, it wasn't one of the Voy ones because with their geofencing, they stop on the motorway. So you do see the odd Voy e-scooter rider on the side of the motorway. But no, this was a guy in black who overtook me. And I just didn't know what to say or do, to be honest. It was, yeah, he had backpack on, dressed entirely in black, straight past. Well, it's a miracle you saw him at all. Good Lord. Yeah, so he might have thought he was going to be a bit safer, but it terrified me. <laughs> I mean, I suppose the ability to have some acceleration, I can see that if an incident's unfolding and you're able to accelerate out of the way. But like, yeah, it's, it's hard to countenance why going at 40 is going to make you safer than not. But there we are. So just going back to one of the recommendations I don't think you flagged is in terms of age limits as well, which is 16 years old is what you're saying. And we obviously, at the start of the podcast, mentioned the 14-year-old boy who has recently pleaded guilty to causing death by driving a vehicle, otherwise a licence and with insurance. And in Ireland, we've spoken with my colleague previously, David Kennedy, in our Dublin office about the legislation that's currently going through there. And there's no age limits being put in place, which I think is the thing that terrified me more than any of the other things that we're listing, is that we're potentially giving children of any age an e-scooter that can go at 12 and a half miles an hour in traffic. What's the reasoning behind your views of 16 as the age limit? So that would be linked to when people can have uh, licences to drive mopeds at the moment. So we haven't been specific about what type of training. We've just said it should be in-person training because we think that's going to be important. We've already spoken about how rental e-scooter evidence shows that People who use e-scooters more frequently are safer. If you're aged 16, then you could access that type of training. You're absolutely right that sadly children are using them at the moment and referring back to the Tarn Major Trauma Unit research by St Mary's Hospital, they found that one third of the e-scooter critical casualties in England were 16 or under. So children might have access to them now, but it appears as though they're using them less safely and are resulting in injuries. So our recommendation is 16 years now, interestingly, with all these recommendations, we have looked to Europe to see what they're doing. The report that we published in February, we published with our partners, the European Transport Safety Council. And really, it's sort of addition two of our report that we published in March. But in that report, you'll see just how many countries have adopted more rigorous regulations over the last year or two. And so age limit is one of them. It is surprising that Ireland, who are at the beginning stages of getting their regulations through have not included an age limit. But this ties back with the previous conversations we've had about the fact that in Europe, a lot of the countries started with legislation and then they've tweaked and they've changed it as things have gone forward. Whereas we seem to be wanting to do something perfect and do it all in one go rather than potentially putting something out and then tweaking it afterwards. Yes, I have to admit I haven't heard enough back from the government for them to understand which of our recommendations they would adopt. Obviously, we're putting them forward and would like all of them to be adopted. It's going to require feedback from other stakeholders through the consultation, consultations as and when they happen for which recommendations to be taken. Germany, I think, is a place where they are looking quite carefully at the moment. I think one of the things that also 
is so apparent. I don't know what your view is. Is you know all of this. The longer we go on, the longer we go on. As you rightly said, there's just more and more private e-scooters that are pre-regulation. So what happens to all of those? I mean, is there any suggestion or any discussion about how they are going to be reined in? Is there going to be a sort of moratorium? Is there going to be a, from this moment forward, you have to comply or, you know, they've never been legal, so they can't be legal. Do you have any steer on what's going to happen there? What's going to happen? I don't know. I can share some of the ideas that have been discussed, you know, things like an amnesty, some sort of swap scheme, when we were starting out our report nearly two years ago, the quality of the private e-scooters were so poor that they didn't tend to last much more than three years anyway. And so there was a thought that, well, they will be replaced by the higher quality e-scooters in time anyway. Now we're getting to the point where it appears that people are quite happy to part with a £1,000 or more for an e-scooter and it's going to take an awful lot for them to swap them out. And I have no idea at all of even any possibility of retrofitting elements to an e-scooter to make it meet the regulations, whatever form they might take. Well, I've been talking about retrofitting just reminds me that one of the other things the TFL examinations made clear was how poorly maintained so many of the e-scooters are and how when they came to test them, so many of them, whatever they'd started out like, had, you know, really poor brakes or really poor tires. And there doesn't seem to be any suggestion of a requirement for ongoing maintenance once you've you know, even if you buy one that's regulated in due course and becomes, you know, and is legal at that stage, there's no kind of idea of a sort of MOT programme, is there? Well, I think this is fascinating. And the purpose for e-scooters, I believe, coming onto our streets, one of them is to provide a new means of transport for people who might not other be, otherwise be able to use other forms of transport. So that demographic would generally be those who have less income. If e-scooters are really going to be accessible to people with lower incomes, then by adding too many additional administrative costs, for example, insurance that would be you know, as high as a car insurance, arguably the training costs as well. And then, gosh, indeed, if they had to have an MOT as well, that could very easily make an e-scooter outside of their financial range and therefore not a means of transport that they could use instead of a private motor vehicle, which is, of course, a main driver that people want so that we're reducing our carbon emissions and congestion. That's one of the arguments around helmets as well, though, isn't it? That it's an added expense on top of the e-scooter. It's something that makes it a lot harder for people to just jump on and get on with things. Yes. However, the argument that you can go around, save yourself a few pounds, but then the NHS would be charged significant amounts of money to put you back together. And of course, the lifelong implications of having head injury are significant. I don't disagree with you, Margaret. When e-scooters were first introduced in terms of way back when the, before the trials and helmets were flagged, it was the same as with cycling, that it can be seen as, and reflective clothing, it's a restrictive aspect, whereas they want as many people as possible to do it. Your numbers across the last two years, even the government's numbers, are showing that there are significant risks to not wearing a helmet and using an e-scooter. So maybe attitudes will have changed. I think one of the really difficult things is you have that slight sort of contradiction or tension inevitable in messaging. Because on the one hand, at Margaret, as you say, I mean, a lot of the idea is to get people using e-scooters who wouldn't, you know, have access to something else. Or, and in particular, get people out of cars, get people, you know, out on the streets and that sort of first and last mile of transport in a more sustainable way. And so for that, you have to 
badge it as any form of solution. You have to badge it as being as simple as possible to use, as easy as possible to use, because you've got to get over that kind of inertia. I mean, we I mean, we talked years ago, Callum, to Adam Tranter, you know, the great cycling mayor, about that inertia of actually getting on your bike, you know, especially if it's wet or cold and putting on your club or getting on your kit. So you've got to make it seem simple and straightforward and easy and safe and reasonable so all that messaging is grab a scooter, hop on and go. <laughs> and then at the same time, as you rightly say, Margaret, not only the NHS doesn't want massive bills, but people don't want life-changing injuries. I mean, you know, you don't want to be potentially in something that's catastrophically harmful. And it, I think that, you know, there's an inevitable tension in trying to encourage people to get out and use transport, micromobility and e-scooters versus, you know, but wear something that's really highly visible and put on a helmet and, you know, lots of that kind of, all of those forces thoughts tend to make you think oh I'll just jump in the car you know so it's a difficult balance it is yes I mean the evidence from the rental trials is that people aren't not getting in their car they're not walking or they're not cycling yes great if e-scooters could pull people out of private motor vehicles then fine but we haven't seen the evidence for that sufficiently yet I think also there's a big difference between a private e-scooter and a rental scooter because I, 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 mean, you know, I rent scooters and bikes lots on the streets and it's always, you know, I'll get the train into London and then I'll rent a bike and it just takes me from A to B and it's brilliant. You jump on it, you jump off, you don't have to worry about anything else or an e-scooter, although that, I'm not such a fan. But that's that very sort of ease of grab and go versus planning a trip with all your kit and caboodle. Yeah. So one of the things that you've also talked about, Margaret, is your wheel size and the sort of optimum size. And from the very start in London, there was that sense of the bigger wheels to get through potholes. I mean, it's both stability and road surface. What's your sort of thinking on that at the moment? So the TRL report is interesting. They've looked at 50 and 70 millimetre potholes or curb edges. Now, 50 millimetres is the depth beyond which local authorities should take action. Depending on what speed you're going at, that 50 millimetres can throw you off. And particularly if you're not expecting it and haven't braced yourself for experiencing it, there's some research by Imperial, I think, which have best looked at that and then the implications of falling off it on head injury. Did the TFL report look at going over ledges and stuff? And I mean, obviously that effectively tips you forward and propels you forward in much the same way as you would from a bike. Yeah, so it was one rider who tested lots of different private e-scooters, which they'd collected, they'd been impounded by police. And those e-scooters were tested over, yes, the different ledges. And in fact, the rental trials, e-scooters also have to be tested for stability over different ledges. Those are all set to be the same as the German specifications for testing as well. So when you're looking at your data of injuries and accidents that have happened, do you have, I mean, obviously you've got the type of injury people have, do you have any data on wheel size or mechanism by which the accident happens and whether or not there's an impact of the wheel size in that mechanism. Wow, that would be absolutely fantastic. We already have so much data, but if we had that as well, then that would really inform us. No, unfortunately, we don't. Seldom we even know where on the road the injury or the collision happened. Looking at data from hospitals, people, interestingly, can come in, even have critical injuries, which only become apparent some days after the collision on the e-scooter. Some internal injuries present themselves later. The other thing to consider, and I've seen it flagged on a case, was where the pothole is in the road as well, because you've got bikes and e-scooters. Well, bikes tend to stay in one in a certain area on the side of the road, but e-scooter riders make their rules up sometimes. E-scooter riders don't tend to ride over to the left the same way as uh, cyclists might do. Also, if you're going around in a roundabout in a little e-scooter, 
there might be a pothole that isn't flagged as actionable in the same way because it's not where a cycle would go, it's where a car would just drive over it, but any scooter may hit it. So you're looking at when councils are looking at roads, having to look at the whole road rather than just certain areas. Just to explain, I've seen a case where it was pleaded because of where it was in the road. And actually, a cycle or a car would not have gone anywhere near this pothole so that the highway inspector hadn't picked it up. One of the concerns that we might have with these scooters is not just the size of the pothole and the size of the wheel, but also the location of the defect on the road. Because as we know, I mean, you can have... So in rural roads, you often have problems where you've got the edge of the tarmac meeting. Effectively, it fades away. You know, you don't have a hard pavement. You have a sort of fading away. And often, it, that's a very easy place to get defects. But that's not necessarily going to affect a e-scooter, which tends to be more in the middle of the road. So, well, I suppose the data doesn't tell you where on the road the accident happened. But it is an interesting question for highways going forward as to the extent to which they'll have to consider all their road users in terms of wheel size, location and different kinds of inspection. Some e-scooter riders fall off their e-scooters because of potholes. And a way that we could find out if that was the case is through situation reports, which are recorded by operators and local authorities as part of the rental trials. Now, we know they've been collected throughout the rental trials. We've been told that they weren't included in the DFT evaluation report because the recording was not consistent across local authorities. So some operators are very hot on even recording near misses. So you'd then find out what happened, where it had happened. And also, in some cases, we actually find out how it's been rectified as well, uh, whereas other local authorities are the ones who are collecting the data rather than the operators, and you get significantly less information. But... Considering, as I've mentioned already, we've already got two and a bit years of data, not one of the year coming up. There's going to be stuff there which could be poured over to give us more information. So far, you've come up with two really good research projects for any budding students out there. But yeah, I mean, gathering that information together and also you've got things like those websites where people log where there are defects on the road, which are, you know, are often used when trying to locate where accidents have happened. It would be interesting. And then in a way that then feeds back to that question of, you know, what you do with the e-scooters that are present already, most of which have very small wheels. And one of the sort of features of the private e-scooters is how many of them have small wheels. And that would tend towards a sort of amnesty swap out moratorium rather than simply saying you know crack on with what you've got because that balance and that ability to cope with public roads is so variable particularly if they're not meant to be on the pavements which they know they're not but if you had regulation and therefore that became better enforcement against pavement use then they would all be on the road and that would be something to take care about I suppose. I think we do have to be realistic and recognise that mending all the potholes on our national highway infrastructure is not going to be possible due to the speed that they return and you know, their prevalence. So yes, absolutely, if the vehicle can be made safer for the roads conditions that we have, that's going to be the winner. So what's next for you, Margaret? You and PACT. So us at PACT, we've got a change of staff. Thank you for the recognition of promotion to Deputy Executive Director. We have Jamie Hassel, who's joining us from National Highways in May. And we want to say thank you very much to David Davies, himself an avid cyclist who's led us well for the last 10 years. We're looking forward to implementing our strategy, which we produced last year. That's going to cover all aspects of transport safety. But I guess for me personally, on the e-scooter front, we've got a conference, free online conference on the 28th of March. Visit our website for details. It's on in the morning. We're looking forward to hoping to have a minister. 
definitely people speaking from the DFT, the TRL team, talking about micromobility in a wider sense. And then looking also into cargo bikes and e-bikes as well. I think something for everyone who is a regular listener to this podcast on the 28th of March. Well, look forward to seeing you then. Thank you so much for coming, Margaret. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Have a great day and happy International Women's Day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Margaret. No problem at all. See you next time, Emily. See you next time, Caroline. Yeah, you take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeachcroft.com and 39essex.com.